My next guest is going to teach me. And I need this lesson because it's been pretty hard to figure this one out. Um, the I don't have a sex education course in my facility with these teenagers. And I happen to know that my state is pretty nervous about that concept in general. Although we have to have materials available to the adolescents in the facility if and when they ask for them. We are a co-ed facility, so as you can imagine, like summer camp, like anyone who's trying to avoid tre treatment and recovery, first thing they're gonna look to in a facility that promotes abstinence from drugs, social media, computers, is a relationship. And so we walk, at Fire Mountain, we walk a careful line between making sure they understand how to be in relationship, non-romantic, non-physical relationships with people of the opposite sex, but questions come up. And there still is such a massive misunderstanding of what a healthy sex education looks like. My guest today is Ann Hodder Ship, and she is a specialist in sex positive uh, treatment and education. And I'm going to ask her how we do this. And parents, teachers, clinicians listening to the show, I want you to pay attention so that we can really work together to create sex positive and accurate and affirming sex education anywhere in recovery, in mental health, in schools. Let's find out from the experts. Welcome to Beyond Risk and Back. I'm your host, Aaron Huey. Thank you for joining me on this WC West Coast Symposium on Addiction Disorders, uh, a version of the Beyond Risk and Back. Thank you for to C4 Events for keeping me on and getting my hands on these experts so you can hear from the experts. Let's get going. And thank you so much for being on the show. Really appreciate you. Thanks for having me. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. Okay. Accurate and affirming sex education. Let's just start with kind of a basic question that will get everybody rolling their eyes. Um, I had a, when I did sex ed in junior high, so my God, that was a billion years ago. I remember my poor teacher, uh, uh, Dr. Uh, uh, Mr. Kloster, um, with his head down in a big book, not looking at any of us students. Half of us were spending class with our hands in the air going, Kai, I have a question. He didn't answer any questions. He read from the text. And then when the bell rang, he slammed the book closed, jammed his hands in his pockets and walked out the, the door. And we all were sitting there stunned on what we just heard. Um, but I got two healthy kids and a healthy life with my wife and everything like that. So what was wrong with that sex education? <laughs> so that's my first question. What was wrong with it? Well, I mean, right off the bat, and I don't know, maybe wrong isn't the word I would use immediately. I would love to know the information from that book. I bet there was some wrong stuff in the book. Um, <laughs> there was, it was horrible. <laughs> but the issue right now is the the burden of providing sex ed at the moment uh, is mostly put on schools, if at all. And as of March, 2020, only 39 states and the District of Columbia actually mandated sex ed at all. And only 17 of those states actually made it illegal to lie. So that literally means, what I won't do math on uh, live, can't do that, but I can talk about sex real good. Um, all the remaining states, it's literally legal to just make anything up about what healthy sex is, how bodies are supposed to be, and states do. Granted, we did just have an election where Washington state passed a statewide revolutionary mandate for accurate sex ed across the state. So fantastic that maybe that boosts 
you know, boosts it to 18 states out of 50. Amazing, 2020, right? Um, but the biggest issue is we are leaving these kinds of conversations to adults who are not equipped to do it. They don't know what to say. They had sex ed that was super lacking. And now they're the adults in charge of teaching sex ed to young people or making the policies or making the rules at the institutions. And I can, you know, we can feel judgy about the decisions that they make, but we also have to understand they're making decisions based on their own really harmful or incomplete experiences with sex ed themselves. And so they're just not equipped to do it and they aren't provided support. They're not really given actual materials to make it engaging so that they can manage their own discomfort with the process while also then experiencing all of the young people's discomfort in the classroom. And uh, so the result of course is gonna be one where people are looking down, feeling embarrassed, laughing, criticizing, hiding, trying to hope nobody can see them. And so we're just like generally, generationally passing down this really lackluster sex ed. And we absolutely have to disrupt the cycle because learning about sexuality is 25-ish percent bodies, orgasms, pleasure, and 45% identity. How do you feel about yourself? How do you feel about the skin suit that you have did not choose, but you are living life in that, you know, in that uh, body? How do you relate to other people? What, you know, how do you deal with feeling rejected or uncomfortable or excited? That's all a part of sexuality education. And without that, we are expecting young people and then people in recovery who for many of them are totally you know, stripping themselves of their own, their old identity and their defense mechanisms. And then we just leave out a huge part of their process of being a human being. And then somehow are surprised that they keep engaging in really harmful patterns in their relationships with themselves as well as other people. So my idea, you know, or my goal, of course, with providing a variety of programming and age appropriate programming is to start uh, disrupting the cycle and filling some of the gaps. Let's uh, before we get into talking about um, education, affirming an accurate sex education in recovery. I want to I want to know what's your background and how did you end up specifically in the in the therapeutic recovery world speaking about sex? Yeah, well, that was kind of an accident, um, but my entire career has been revolving around sexuality in some form. It was at one point a journalist um, covering the business of uh, the adult industry and sexuality research. And then I was a sex blogger where my job ultimately was distilling complicated information about uh, that was coming out of the sex research world and then finding a way to make it um, palatable and digestible to just the rest of us. And um, Around 2012, I just started getting a lot of reader questions and a lot of social media questions from people who were genuinely seeking help and just wanted someone to answer the questions that no one else would answer for them. And I had lots of information and knowledge as a result of my work, but I didn't necessarily have the skills to facilitate the information in a way that was accurate, as well as affirming of all identities using uh, language that's appropriate and accurate and up to date. And so around 2014, that's when I started uh, seeking out trainings that were within my value systems, which among other things is um, recognizing that sexuality is more than just heterosexuality. And to really understand that we can teach about sex and sexuality that doesn't have to center around specific body parts or assumptions of people's relationship styles or how they feel about the world. 
And uh, then um, I actually was uh, in a new relationship with someone who had worked in the treatment world for years and years. And I had heard a story of an, a facility that he worked in where they were confiscating adult women's vibrators before, uh, during their intake program and considering them contraband and requiring them if they did want to um, self-pleasure and use it as a stress relief release device, they had to go to someone and sign out their sex toy. Um, usually a cis male um, attendant was the one in charge of allowing, and then they get to decide whether they were gonna permit them to use the vibrator. It was very infantile, super shaming. And of course, it nobody was going to sign out you know, there's their sex toy and um, antiquated barbarianism is what that exactly. is. Sex also all of it. Right. And it's kind of like this beautiful represent representation of patriarchy in a little bit of a microcosm. And I just yeah. heard the story and, you know, some folks might be hearing this and they're like, so what? They shouldn't be able to use their sex toys, blah, blah, blah. But it's there. That is rooted in a lot of misunderstanding of how uh, people, especially women and, and femme identifying people, um, connect to their body and express themselves and how that has been policed historically for centuries. And I just remember sitting there and wondering, that's so, it's just unfair. And it's one of those policies that if there was someone on staff who um, understood a little bit more about the role that sex toys would play, or even the role that masturbation can play in the healing process, that policy probably would have been a little different. And so I just right away, I contacted the facility and I was curious, you know, do you offer sexuality or relationship education or do you have groups that help people um, understand what is sex and sexuality mean to them as a sober person? And do you have policy makers that aren't Neanderthals, anything. Totally. <laughs> Even just like, do you ever bring in a consultant to kind of figure out, oh, is this, for instance, this idea of gender separation? does that actually serve people or does that assume that everyone is heterosexual and then therefore they just automatically feel safe among folks of their own presumed gender? And is it possible that that is something that was, has been used for a really long time and people, it, it was well-intended, but is it possible that this idea of gender separation actually is perpetuating more harm than good? And could we think of like what our actual goal is and potentially find some different solutions to get toward that goal, really from a place of just openness and curiosity, not of a place of like, you're wrong, I'm right, that's bad, this is good. And really just like trying to explore, could we do this a little different? And if so, what feels good to us? And then who should we hire to do it? Right. So let's, let's start there because I want, I want to, I want to work this process through because, well, quite frankly, you're my consultant now and, and, and I've, I've hired you and I want to figure out how to do this right and be progressive, be protective of my business, be a very conscious of the state policies that I have. So let's start with staff. If you're advising me on making sure that I have an accurate and affirming sex education program, that's age appropriate. So you can decide whether you're talking to me and I'm adult facility or adolescent facility. Um, how do I start with staff? What am I looking for? And this for me also translates that when I'm a, I'm a parent or I'm a family member and my, my loved one is going in for treatment and then I find out they have a sex ed program and I want to know 
Why do you trust these staff to teach this? What is it that you would consult me on expecting from my staff? Absolutely. Well, there's two things that come to mind right away. So if you were to have somebody specifically teaching a group or offering sessions around sexuality or relationship management, I would look specifically for folks who have um, sought out on their own professional development that wasn't just packaged in whatever four-year or eight-year program they may have done. And then to really find out what is that program about? Is that program run by staff that uh, come from a variety of backgrounds? What is the staff who are teaching the professional development, like what are their qualifications and does their website also specify that they are not only inclusive but expansive and affirming of all of the unique ways that human beings express themselves and experience joy and experience pleasure. And pleasure is not, of course, not just a synonym for sex, right? Like pleasure is also a thing we feel regardless of whether we have a, you know, a sexual desire. And so really seeing has the staff member understood and recognized and acknowledged their own schooling's lack of sex education. Because it's actually very minimal in LMFT programs, in uh, psychology programs, um, a majority of, of programming or a majority of um, folks going into that field have to do their own training and professional development on their own and like seek it out. And so that does take some initiative and, and, and time and, and resources. And so it's no judgment, of course, if somebody hasn't, but if they do want to then specialize in this field and their top, this topic, they've got to do some of that work first. So that's the first answer. Second answer, though, is understanding um, many facilities from state to state do have limited resources and they can't necessarily afford to bring someone new on. And they might not even have the space at the moment to just completely you know, uproot their program. And that's okay too, I understand that. So the next thing I would um, suggest is sexuality education isn't just something that the sex educator does and needs to know. Um, everyone or anyone in my personal opinion and professional opinion, anyone who works in a service field will benefit and be a better service provider if they also know how to talk about sexuality and identity and bodies and pleasure in a non-judgmental and comfortable way. And you get there by doing professional development. So I also could recommend that facilities just take their existing training, maybe their techs, maybe the folks who run that, the inpatient or the houses that people are staying in and give them some training so that say, if they do walk in on someone who is self-pleasuring in the bathroom, or if they've noticed that two clients have actually formed a relationship and now maybe there's an STI scare or all the things that can happen in certain facilities, they actually know how to handle it, not from like a parental, this is bad and I'm gonna punish you for it type of place. And in an understandable, this is actually something that's kind of part of the deal. When you put people who are seeking self-soothing and don't have access to the thing that used to work for them, though of course it didn't really work for them, I suppose, but, uh, and now they're seeking out what they have access to and they're all packed in as sardines into residential spots. So how do I actually handle this in a way that doesn't create a whole new problem and actually addresses the issue at hand and doesn't necessarily center maybe the staff member's discomfort or the staff member's outrage or frustration or whatever might be coming up for them. So that's another way that facilities can um, prepare themselves where they can just get everyone who's on staff who works with folks better prepared for these kinds of conversations and situations. 
And stand by. I'm going to give a special shout out to our silver sponsors. And I'll be right back as we start to wrap around the backside. I want to talk about what should a program, uh, the content and the context of a program. What what are we talking about and how do we talk about it? Uh, I've I've got some curiosities around that. So stand by just for a second. Our silver sponsors are the people who've showed up with the time, the money, and the energy to make sure that we can continue to make these connections and and have these collaborations in the industry of uh, addiction, mental health, recovery, intervention, support. When the conferences are live, they're amazing. We have a lot of fun. We have these great dinners. We do 12-step meetings together. We, We network, network, network. And that can't just go away because there's a there's a pandemic. Like we cannot settle for that. We have to keep growing the industry and growing the field so that we can continue to support programs, uh, clinicians, professionals, and the people who rely on the programs, clinicians, and professionals. So these are our silver sponsors who made sure that we could continue the WCSAD virtually in 2020. Discovery Behavioral Health, a better life recovery. Dreamscape Marketing, Alchemies, The Guest House, Oceanfront Recovery, Origins Behavioral Healthcare, and Southworth Associates. You guys, thank you so much for making sure we can still connect, collaborate, and continue the work of helping, helping people recover from a life that's been hurting. Let's get back to Ann. All right, Ann, so content. what should these programs have in them? What are what are some of the top things like whether you're working with uh, teens or whether with adults, women only, men only, you have to talk about these sub- these following subjects. Great question. So right off the bat, I like to I mean, I, I have kind of created like a six, maybe six to eight week curricula that kind of hits the the cornerstones. I like to right away start with just what is sexuality? And beyond what immediately comes to our minds. And through that, really helping people understand that sexuality is one part, bodies, pleasure, genitals, all the things, one part, your value systems and core beliefs about yourself and the world and other people, one part, how you feel, your body image, self-esteem, your gender identity, your sexual orientation, who, who are you even attracted to and who are you not? And then also your behaviors, just how, what are the things you do in order to express how you feel? And how do you use your value systems to choose those behaviors? And to really help frame that we actually don't necessarily choose how we feel, but we do choose what we do about those feelings. And then really exploring our own relationship now that we have kind of a more expansive understanding of what sexuality really looks like and what it's all about. Okay, well then what, what does that mean to me today? And how does that apply to what maybe my goals are, whether they're my short term goals at the treatment center, or even my longer term goals in terms of like, how do I just want to exist in the world? And who really am I outside of the performative maybe persona that I've been trying to hold on to for so long? And what scares me about that? And who can help me work through that fear? That all comes up as a foundational um, conversation about sexuality. And then I like to shift into um, gender roles, gender expectations. What does gender even mean to us? And what are some of these stereotypes and expectations that we've been ultimately have been imposed on us since before we're even born? And 
how do we actually like believe them? Do some of them actually work for us or do some of them we just believe that they're true about people, but really they're just a belief system that exists in the community or the household or the folks that um, were in charge of raising me. And if so, what are some beliefs about who I am or what other people are supposed to be like? What are some that I could actually let go of because they're not really helping me out? And what could I, what's maybe more accurate or at least more affirming to me as a client, um, as a person, like what could I replace that with that serves me as the person that I know that I am outside of what I've been trying to work on and let go of and, and sort of shift and heal for myself um, through seeking treatment. Uh, then we also talk about um, what it means to have safer sex and harm reduction in a sexuality and sexual behavior conversation. So less about what is safe sex, because technically there's no such thing as safe sex, but what would it mean to me to engage in like risk management? You know, what matters to me and what are some things that I maybe haven't really thought of as a part of safer sex that actually matter to me in terms of how I feel, how safe or comfortable I feel in a sexual situation. So that would be everything from understanding and destigmatizing sexually transmitted infections, um, understanding how to treat them, not necessarily if, but when we experience one, that's how common they are. Uh, and then also, you know, safety beyond preventing pregnancy and an STI and also like what's, what's emotional safety look like? What does that feel like? What's affirmative consent? And do I actually have a relationship to consent and boundaries? Maybe that's the thing that I never really learned about. And that's something I could actually really benefit from as part of my uh, treatment experience, really understanding, oh yeah, I've never actually thought about what permission and boundaries look like on my terms, not everyone else's terms. When, when we talk about context versus the content, one of the context questions that I have is that do you find it more effective to teach uh, mixed gender groups? You know, would it, and in a facility like mine, let's talk about adolescents because they seem to be leading the way on being extremely accepting of different orientations. We have probably 75% uh, cis or heteronormative uh, uh, kids, boys and girls, we're a co-ed facility, but then we have 25% of our kids that are part of the LGBTQIA community. Should I separate them? Should I keep them together? When we have these conversations and I've got the expert in the building, what's gonna bring about the most support and um, connection? Great question. So there are two ways that I would approach that. First off, in terms of just sex and relationship education, I am a full supporter of mixed gender groups. Separating, I experienced this as a young person as well. The separation, first, it was the, the separation of sexes, right? Back when there was just this idea of there are two categories of human. And right. we're going to protect them from each other by keeping some information secret and separate, but then some information only for them. And well-intended, but also mostly based in fear and misunderstanding of what, in how powerful information really actually can be for someone. Um, mixed gender is really important because there is no sex ed information that isn't applicable to all human beings. Because we all live among one another. So if I have a penis and testicles, yes, I need to know what it means to take care of that body part, to use it with respect and care for myself and others. 
but I also need to know what vulvas and clitorises are all about. Even if I might never ever encounter one in my relationships because I identify as gay. So it's about understanding how humans are so that it's, we are more prepared to interact with all the humans and there's familiarity, there's respect and there's comfort with all of the different ways humans are so that we don't end up having that adverse reaction where we encounter someone who is very different from what we thought people are supposed to be like. And therefore our brain sees that as a threat and depending on a variety of factors, I'm going to potentially engage with that person from a place of fear or from a place of threat. Or maybe I will see that person as less human than me or less deserving of my care and respect. And that's all stuff that starts from separation and isolation from knowing about people who are different from me. So that's the first thing right away is just everyone gets the same information. They all need it, they all deserve it and will benefit from it. When it comes to working with queer kids, LGBTQIA kids, there are two ways to go about it. I, again, am a full supporter of everyone gets the same information because it's, it's essential, which means the information has to be from a lens of expansiveness and affirmation, not just heterosexuality. And also here's some other stuff to include. It's included all. That said, there are some facilities as well as some groups of folks where it just does not feel emotionally or even physically safe for the queer kids to be with the straight and cis kids. And I wish that wasn't true, but that is something that we, we are working toward, um, trying to nip that you know, in the bud. But we also then get to, to talk to the queer kids. We get to ask, what feels good to you? Would you rather, do you feel comfortable first being in a group with everyone? And if not, let's explore why. If so, fantastic. But what do you feel about in addition to the groups, the, the comprehensive groups, would you like to have your own LGBTQIA group where we just get to talk about the stuff that's coming up for you that maybe you wouldn't feel um, comfortable or even you know, safe or even relevant to talk about in the bigger group? And so you get to give them, you get to empower them a little bit to share what would actually work for you and how and if you know, how can we uh, accommodate that? And if we can, let's implement it. I've got, I've got one comment and then one last question um, before we make sure people can find you, find your website, find you on social media, all that. Uh, my comment is this, what I have noticed is that while the heteronormative kids uh, are in our facility are very open, and uh, supportive and accepting to the entire environment that we have. When it comes time to um, share everything with everybody, they shy, right? And because they're, they're still, but when we talk to the LGBTQIA kids, regardless of where they are in their orientation or transition or identification, they will talk about anything and listen and support everything with each other. And it's incredible because they're having such a diverse experience from the heteronormative experience that when they're, they're just, they're gobbling all the information up and it's like, I, everybody needs to hear this. Like they, we, we, everybody, I need to hear them talk like this so that it's normalized for me. So my, my final question is about what you think needs to change before everybody relaxes and pulls their underwear out of their butt and goes, okay, like 
regardless of whether or not I think it's a fad or I think it's a phase or I think it's weird or I don't understand it, that we can all say, I support it. What's missing for support? Oh, gosh, I don't know if I could choose one thing, but I think right away, if if we notice that we're trying to label someone else's experience or something that they are expressing or sharing with us as like a fad or something temporary, we are delegitimizing it and we're shutting that person down um, and we're not taking it seriously. And so I think right away is just, especially with young people, young people are not dum-dums. Young people are smart. They know what's going on with them. They see and they smell your BS right away, especially if it's their parents and caregivers, right? They can see all the things that some of us as adults cannot see. So if somebody is sharing with us, especially they've shown us, given us the honor of being the person that they tell something to, believe them first. The first thing is believe them and affirm it and say, thank you for sharing that. That's so interesting. I'd love to hear more. When can we talk? Give them that space. That is the thing that, especially for young people, though I will argue probably most adults too, especially in treatment, they want to validate them, treat them like humans, give them your time, show them that you care about the stuff that you're that they're saying, and really acknowledge if you are coming up with some judgments or some or questioning or really quickly kind of like minimizing what they're saying to you. That doesn't make you a bad person, but that does let you know, oh, interesting, that's some stuff for me to work on. That's my lack of education and understanding coming up. And I don't want that to take the wheel because that's going to hurt this other person. And I don't want to hurt them right. ever. So right away, believe them, take them seriously and engage in conversation, especially with, you know, with queer kids. Like the reason why they're so open with one another is they are hungry and sometimes desperate for community because community is what has literally historically saved non-heterosexual folks because they are have been historically ostracized or criminalized or punished for being outside of those hetero assumptions and so community saves their lives and we can see how healing it is when we do watch queer people and queer kids interact with one another because that's their chosen family you know they're building their own support network and what a beautiful thing to demonstrate for heterosexual folks, like look how healing it can be to like not just think of this as an individual issue and maybe connect with someone, especially folks who are men or how identify or you know were brought up masculinized where there's sort of like this um, really, I mean, a huge judgment and in some ways a it's not even safe to really connect and show your feelings. Just how healing it must be to just to have to meet them where they're at and to validate the thing that they've said and to encourage even more of it. There's something so powerful in that. And and that was when I was told by Soren Richter, who they founded uh, Queer Asterix and they train our staff and they are also uh, um, a, a former uh, intern of ours. But when I started the the podcast with them, I said, um, you know, what's wrong? In a, and I've heard that there's a problem with this. And what's wrong with me saying, I don't care whether you're gay or straight or bi. That doesn't matter. I support you. And Soren said, because you can't negate who I am so that you can care about me and support me. Care what I am 
and support me. And I was like, ah, that was, it was so awesome. It was so eloquent. And how can people get in touch with you, follow up with you, sign up for your workshops? What do you have and where can they go to get it? Yeah. So, um, I have a private practice, but I actually would recommend folks going to everyone deserves sex We offer a few different, uh, professional development, uh, workshops and trainings. We do offer a sex educator certification twice a year. It's 35 hours of training. We're in the process of being um, approved to offer CEUC camps in California. So that's exciting. Uh, and we also have a series of live masterclasses that are uh, weekly starting in the middle of November um, and are just ongoing until 2021, where we get to um, work with folks who are trying to do some more sex ed work in the professional side of things, um, help them build their business, help them work with professional boundaries and, and give them some of the skills to really be great at this work. And through everyonedeservessexed.com, you can contact me personally about um, teen groups, parent groups. I love working with teens. I mean, I work with everyone, but I love working with young people. Um, and, uh, and right now I'm doing everything virtually. So actually the beauty of this situation is I've been able to do groups um, at places around, like literally around the world right now. So absolutely reach out to me there. Fantastic. Well, I'm going to reach out to you and have our executive director reach out to you for some staff support training as we move into the next phase of our company and recovery program for adolescents. So, Anne, thank you so much for being on the show. I would like to have you back as a full show guest at some point. Is that something you'd like to do? Always. I'd love it. Awesome. I can talk about this forever. Great. Love, this, is, this is my world. Awesome. All right. So I'm writing in my notes, long show, and I will get back in touch with you. Stay on the line just for a second while I sign us off and uh, I'll be right back with you. So when, when I do a podcast or an episode about sex, LGBTQIA, anything related to sex, recovery, porn addiction, anything like that. Inevitably, the trolls on the internet show up and they got something to say and they're gonna, they wanna diss on it, they wanna throw Bible quotes at it, whatever they can. And my response is always the same. Hey, someone check their uh, web history. <laughs> because I think that if, they, if they've got a real big issue with it, most likely they have their own hidden shame and want to find a way to connect to it. Again, just like a toddler, if they're, 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 they're gonna, if they can't get the attention they want, they're gonna get it the attention that they need and they'll get it through even negative behaviors like being an internet troll. So I always respond with, hey, someone check their internet history. Cause inevitably every politician that speaks out against whatever debauchery they've decided is their platform ends up being pulled off of their their uh, throne for the exact same thing. So let's find a way to have accurate and affirming sex, sex education. Uh, I want to thank Ann uh, Hoder Ship. I hope I said your name right, Ann. Did I say your name right? Okay. Um, for being my guest and being on Beyond Risk and Back. Thank you to C4 Vets for allowing me to be part of this amazing virtual experience. I can't wait to see everybody in person again, but until then, we're washing our hands, we're staying safe, and we're doing all our work online virtually. I want to say thank you to Your Cause Consulting, who gets my podcast in front of everybody who needs to see it, and Deepin Productions, who produces the music and produces the sound of the podcast. Parents. Take care of yourself first, your adult relationship second, and your children third. That's how you're going to do your best work with your children. 
Everybody, please listen, like, subscribe, and share to be on Risk and Back and leave a review on iTunes because it helps me get the show in front of people who need help. Thank you so much for listening. I'll see you again next week. <laughs>